Amen. Go and have a seat. And a good morning. Happy Father's Day. And uh, so thankful for fathers and uh, awesome privilege and awesome responsibility to mirror uh, the way God the Father uh, engages and interacts with us. <coughs> I chuckle a little bit thinking about Father's Day given the content of Mark 10. And uh, so let's just go right to it. In the, the beginning of Mark 10, Jesus deals with divorce. Uh, not your typical Father's Day passage. Now, I don't know what it is about here, uh, but it seems that when it comes to Mother's Day or Father's Day, we tend to have some of the uh, most difficult passages. And I think actually it was my first Mother's Day here, we taught on hell. Um, so Father's Day and divorce actually doesn't feel that bad uh, in comparison. But suffice to say, you know, the way that we preach is we, we move through books of the Bible and uh, that's what we're going to do this morning and uh, dealing with divorce. Before we go any further, I want to pray. Given the nature of this, given the reality of this, the difficulty of uh, this topic, I want to pray. As always, we'll pray for another church in the area. And uh, you may or may not be aware of the fact that we have almost 30 of our people, I think 24 students and four leaders uh, that are somewhere in western Arizona or eastern California on their way to camp. Uh, yesterday was a good day of travel. Today started out not so well. Stefan told me that they've had three puking incidents. I'm not sure if that's one student, three students, what suffice to say. That's gross. And that's, yeah, you feel, you feel for Stefan and more importantly, you feel for whoever's throwing up because you're stuck in a hot car and you're just outside of Phoenix. So it's like being on the surface of the sun. Um, so let me pray. Let me pray. Let me pray for our time. Let me pray for, I'm going to pray for Trinity and Michael Kelshaw. We're going to pray for our students. Join me. Jesus, as we come before you, uh, God, we thank you uh, thinking about Father's Day. And uh, God, for many of us, there's this wide continuum of our biological fathers. Some of us are really, really excited about today. Others of us, today's, today's hard. Um, but when we think about you, God, as Father, that's not hard. That's a great privilege. That's a great honor that you would choose to make us your children. And so for that, we say thank you. God, as we um, move towards your word, as we open your word, we, as we continue to worship in, in, a, in a, maybe in a different manner, so to speak, we pray that you would come and speak to us. God, not only <coughs> uh, to us, we think of uh, other churches in the area, specifically this morning for Pastor Michael Kelshaw and for Trinity in the Marketplace. God, I thank you for Michael. I thank you for his friendship. What a godly man he is. And God, I pray that as he preaches this morning that you would be honored and lifted high in him and in that place. God, for our students and our leaders as they travel, would you give them safety? Would you take them to California um, and to camp? Would they have a great time? Would there be great relationships built? And just the, 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 the whole point of camp uh, and, and so many of those things. But above all those things, God, we pray that you would reveal yourself to those students in ways that they uh, have not known. God, help us this week to remember them, to pray for them, to think of them and their time there. And now, God, for us, as we open up your word and look at uh, what is, God, it's just hard. It's a hard passage. Would you give us uh, eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to understand and to respond? 
accordingly and appropriately to what you have for us. So come and do the work that only you can do uh, in the hearts and the lives of your people, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. So Mark 10, <clears throat> verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to start this morning and engaging a very difficult topic, the topic of divorce. Now let me just maybe preface or start with this. Uh, I'm aware of the fact that probably every person in this room in some way, shape, or form has been impacted by divorce. Whether you yourself have been divorced, whether you're considering divorce, whether you come from a home um, where your parents are divorced, whether you have siblings or children who've been divorced, uh, most of us, if not all of us, know all too well of the painful reality that is divorce. Further, um, I don't think it's lost on any of us that the, the, the concept of divorce is incredibly emotional. It can be quite volatile. And it will mess with you. I don't care who you are, it will mess with you. So my heart, my heart this morning is that in a gracious, in a compassionate, in a loving, but yet also in an honest and truthful way, that we simply let God's word speak into this manner and into this issue. So let's go right to the text, Mark 10. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. would encourage you to read along as I read aloud. Here's what God's word, in fact, I'll tell you what, let's stand. Let's stand this morning. Let's honor the reading of God's word uh, as we read this. Here's what God is speaking to you and I, loved ones. Here's what he says. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He, Jesus, answered them, What did Moses command you? They said in quoting or referencing Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, and now beginning to reference Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are, no they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then in verse 10, obviously away from the crowds, Jesus in a home with the disciples. We see this exchange. <clears throat> in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. I'm assuming there's more to the conversation. Mark only recounts these two verses in saying this of what Jesus says in verse 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's God's word, loved ones. It's God's word. We would do well uh, to heed what God is saying to us here this morning. Go ahead and have a seat. Title of the message this morning, this might surprise you, Biblical Marriage. Thought we were talking about divorce. Well, that's what the Pharisees want to talk about, but in the text, that's not what Jesus talks about. 
Okay, and uh, let, me, let me just make a general observation here with respect to the whole of the text that may help us to frame this, and then we'll begin to walk through it. Look at verse 2. Uh, really, things begin to pick up at the beginning of verse 2. It tells us this, that the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees' intent here is not legitimate questioning. They're not seriously wondering, hey, Jesus, can you in fact instruct us on this? They're testing him. They're pushing him. They're pressing him. They want to manipulate him. They want to trap him in this. Now, by God's grace, by God's grace today, my heart is that we would approach this not as the Pharisees do, looking for some way to manipulate the scriptures, looking for some loophole or some way to get around these things, but that we would hear specifically what God is speaking with respect to this issue, that we would get at Jesus' heart. Not looking for legal loopholes, loved ones, but the very heart and intent of what Jesus is saying because what Jesus does is he almost says nothing with respect to divorce. All he tells them in verse 5 is, your heart is hard, And then he talks about marriage. And the only thing that you could even potentially tie to divorce is what he says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Everything else is he's speaking to marriage. Marriage as God sees it. And so our intent, our desire this morning as we move through this text is to get at not the letter of the law. Okay, what can I do? When can I get out? How can I escape? But what's the spirit of the law? What's God's heart on this? What is God's intent? What does God want? What has he said with respect to these truths? So with that, let's begin to walk through this passage. Three three main points this morning, two from the text. Then the final one is kind of treating the text in whole and letting it speak into the various places in our life. Now, this morning will look a little bit different for us in that uh, where we would typically preach in a manner where we want to uh, explain, illustrate, and apply as we move through the text and just moving through that cycle over and over and over again. Uh, This morning will be a little bit different in that there'll be a a lot more of the information, a lot more of the explanation up front, and a lot more of the application on the back end. Because I want to make sure we fully understand everything that's going on and some of the nuance and different things of that nature in the text. So bear with me as we're a little bit more informational up front and applicational on the back uh, end of things. So here we go. Three things. First thing, verses 1 through 9. Biblical marriage. I just wrote this down. Responding to divorce. How do we respond to divorce? What does that look like? What is Jesus teaching us? And in verse two, uh, things, in verse one, Mark just tells us uh, with respect to some travel and where Jesus finds himself. That'll become important here in a moment and we'll come back to that in a moment. But notice verse two, Pharisees come up to test him. No intent of actually learning. This is a hostile question. They want to trap Jesus. And then their question itself, honestly, is, is an odd question. Look at it again, verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It was commonly assumed in their day that it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. When Jesus asked them, what did Moses command you? They referenced Deuteronomy 24. That that was the whole out. That was the whole clause. That's what made it legal. So why this question? Here's why I think they're asking this question. 
Question. If you look back in verse 1, they've come back into the region of Judea. Now what had happened in Judea not that long ago, or you flip back a few chapters in the book of Mark, remember John the Baptist? He was speaking out about some things with respect to Herod, wasn't he? And it was this issue. Had to do with divorce and marriage. And the fact that Herod uh, had his brother's first wife, Herodias. Ended up costing John the Baptist his life. Now, I can't prove this, but I think part of the underlying thing that's happening here is the religious leaders don't only want to trap Jesus spiritually, I think they want to trap him politically. That worked really well. Got rid of John the Baptist. Hey, now we're back in Judea. Tell you what, this guy says the wrong thing. Let's go to Herod. Pop, off with his head. We're done. I think it's a reflection of their heart and the hatred and the malice that they have towards Jesus. This is more than just what do you think spiritually and how do you see Deuteronomy 24? I think it's much deeper than this. And we have to see their intent. We have to see their purpose and what they were after. Jesus, in his response to them, I think he sees right through it. What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? A couple of things I might note with respect to that. First of all, I find it interesting that Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture. I mean, he could have said anything and it would have been authoritative. He could have said anything and it would have been the Word of God. And yet, what does he do? He appeals to the authority of Scripture. It'd be a great lesson for you and I to remember that. To bring to mind, first of all, that what we are talking about here this morning does in fact have the weight and authority to speak into our life. But it also has the weight and authority to speak in all people's lives. Well, listen, Mike, I mean, that sounds good and maybe that preaches well. People don't really believe this is the word of God anymore. Question. Does their belief as to whether or not this is in fact the word of God validate or invalidate whether or not it's actually the word of God? It doesn't. I I can believe the police have no authority over me and I can keep breaking the law, but one of these days I'm going to wake up in jail irrespective of what I think of their authority over me. Don't buy into this garbage. Well, no one believes that it's the word. It's the word of God. I don't care what they think. I can think the sky is purple. Doesn't change what the reality is. And Jesus appealing to the authority of the scriptures. But then also this, secondly, that word command. What did Moses command you? Interestingly enough, what they went to, in fact, let me read to you of the whole of what they referenced. This is what they referenced. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Uh, this is what they're saying. This is God's command on divorce. Now you tell me what you think. I'll, you be the own ju- your own judge of this. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, I will tell you that word indecency, there's a little bit of ambiguity uh, to that as far as we're concerned, though I don't think there was any ambiguity in Moses' day or even in Jesus' day with respect to what that word meant. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, okay? Guy has some issue with his wife, writes her certificate of divorce, sends her out. Verse two. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand or sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. So first husband and wife has some issue with her, sends her out a certificate of divorce, goes and gets remarried. This guy dies, has some issue with her, gets divorced. Verse four. Then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that's an abomination before the Lord. Question. 
Is that a command of divorce? It's not a command to divorce. In fact, there's a lot of aspects of divorce it doesn't even cover. At best, it's a concession for divorce because of the sinfulness and the wickedness of their hearts. But he's speaking specifically to a situation where a woman who has been divorced gets remarried, should not go back and marry her first husband. And there are some other things in the law with respect to that 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 could have been a way in which he would have manipulated her or manipulated her family. And I think that's part of what's happening. What's fascinating about Deuteronomy 24 is it's not even close to a a, a mandate. It's not, um, it doesn't even set out legitimate grounds for divorce. Its purpose was simply to prevent that wife from going back and marrying her first husband. And yet the Pharisees' response is this. Here's what Moses has commanded us. Eh, wrong. In fact, Jesus is going to show them where they're wrong in just a moment because look at where Jesus goes. There actually was a command in Moses' writing with respect to marriage and divorce or by application by uh, to divorce. See, what the religious leaders were doing is they had taken the scriptures and they made it say what they wanted it to say. And so in their day, it was no different than our day where you had this whole continuum of what made divorce permissible. On one end, you had uh, very conservative individuals who said that only adultery was grounds for divorce. And, and, and I'm not even kidding when I say this. They're literally rabbinical writings. So that'd be like the cultural equivalent of a pastor who wrote, you could divorce your wife if she burnt bread. That was grounds. According to rabbis, uh, other rabbis had written that if you found someone who was more desirable, that was grounds for divorce. We are not the only society that has struggled with casual natures with which we handle marriage and divorce. It was happening in Jesus' day as well. But Deuteronomy 24 is not a command. Genesis 1 and 2, ironically enough, there's a lot of commands with respect to marriage and that's where Jesus is going to go in a moment. But before he goes there, look at what he does in verse 5. And so notice this. Responding to divorce, here's the first thing. Divorce exists because of our hardness of heart. And that word our, loved ones, is intentional. Because look at what Jesus says to them. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You mean 1,400 years earlier when Moses was writing this? He had the Pharisees in mind. No, he didn't. But through the inspiration of God, God did. Speaking to this very issue. And the truth is, in the same way that they were complicit, you and I are complicit. He's removing this abstract back then, those people sense, and he's putting it right in front of us going, this is you and I. This is us. That we're responsible for this. I'll tell you even further, this right here, verse 5, this is the issue in the text. It's the hardness of their hearts. They want to trap Jesus. They, they want to um, do away with Jesus. And, and what Jesus exposes because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That's what he's addressing. Divorce is simply the means by which he exposes their hardness of heart. Do you see that? See, because what they want... I think this is probably true of all of us at some level, is I want to live life the way that I want to live. But I don't want to be at odds with God. And I want those two to go together. 
except it just doesn't work that way. If you want to live the way that you want to live, fine. You're at odds with God. Or if you want to live the way that God wants you to live, you got to live that way. But you can't say, I want to live the way that I want to live, but I want God to love me and treat me like the people are doing the things that he's telling them to do. It's a fool's errand. You got to pick one. And this is what the religious leaders were doing. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus is calling them on that. And their hardness of heart the stubborn resistance to God, this insensitivity to what God is calling them to. Yet make no mistake, make no mistake, God never sanctioned divorce, God never commanded divorce. Divorce was never God's intention, and yet, and yet, loved ones, there are times where he permits it because of the Harm because of the, um, the, the absolute destruction against the covenant of marriage that he established with them. And the mere fact, when you think about that, you think about the immeasurable grace of God that he would allow a concession in something like this is phenomenal. But first and foremost, when we look at this, we have to own our part in this. Divorce exists because we are hard-hearted sinners. It's us. Not them, not people out there. It's us. And then notice the secondly, verses six through nine, that biblical marriage is the appropriate response to divorce. Biblical marriage is the appropriate response to divorce. A full, robust understanding of God's intention for marriage and what God himself has said with respect to this is the proper response to understanding divorce. What did Moses command you? Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Your heart is hard. Okay, now let me tell you about marriage. That's essentially what Jesus says. And he spends the rest of his time not answering their question, not speaking about divorce, but he's speaking about marriage. He's speaking proactively about how we confront and address the temptation and the potential threat of divorce in our life. And so if you are married, if you um, are considering marriage, or there is ever the possibility out here that you could be married... You might want to perk up your ears, you might want to pay attention, you might want to listen because Jesus is about to drop a truth bomb on how this whole marriage thing is supposed to work as far as God is concerned. The biblical marriage is the response to divorce. And then he, what he spends almost the rest of his time doing is speaking about Genesis 1 and 2 and what that looks like. And so I've got six things here in verses 6 through 9 that I want to point out with respect to biblical marriage that I think speaks into our lives in very dramatic ways. Notice this first of all. It says this in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation. From the beginning of creation. The Pharisees went to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus went right back to the creation account. He's like, no, not far enough, guys. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Why there? Because he's appealing to a timeless principle. He's appealing to something that God created before sin ever existed. He's appealing to something that, 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 that before sin entered into the world, before, before there was ever even the thought of divorce, we see what God's true intent for marriage was from the beginning. And so when Jesus starts by saying, but from the beginning of creation, 
what God's original intent was, which, by the way, is still his intent, and it has not changed one bit. Do not fool yourself into thinking it's changed. This is what God thinks about it. My encouragement to you as we talk about these next five things is that you would put God's intent, not your own personal intent or personal preference, into this. That you would simply respond to what the text is teaching us. Okay, so what's it saying? Here's the first thing. God made them male and female. Talks about male and female. Why that? Okay, why do you start with gender? Like, what's the point of that? Like, well, I mean, that's probably generations past. Maybe we would wonder in our generation. It's not hard to wonder why he starts there, is it? Because well, there's a lot of confusion on this. There's a lot of misunderstanding on this. There, there, there's a lot of lack of understanding on this. Now, what God starts here, and he will flesh out over the next couple of verses, is this. Hear me when I say this. That when God established his original perfect intent for marriage, it was this. It was a covenant of a lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous relationship. That was God's intent for marriage from the beginning. It is still God's intent for marriage today. A covenant that is lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous. That is the defining characteristics of what God's intent of what the marriage relationship is supposed to look like. In fact, he's going to further fill that out here in a minute, but I want to hit on just this aspect of the male and female for a moment. Because love wants anything, anything, anything outside of that understanding of marriage is outside of God's intent for marriage. Now today, you say, well, here was God's original intent for marriage and it hasn't changed. And you get a few responses. Probably the most common one is, come on, Mike. There's polygamy all over the Old Testament. How do you explain that? How do you explain these guys with multiple wives? Pretty easy, actually. Can you show me a verse in the Bible where God condones that, where he approves of that, where he's excited about that, where he accepts it? You, I'll, I'll help you right now. I'd encourage you to read the entirety of the Bible, but it's not in there, okay? It's not there. You won't find that. Because at the very beginning of the Bible, God already told us his intent. And so just because we see things that are described in Scripture... The scriptures describe David having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. We don't go, well, hey, David did it. It's a good idea. No, we, we know. He told us what happened, not that it was good. And so just because we see guys like David or Solomon or other guys in the scriptures that have multiple wives, God's not saying, I affirm that. He's simply describing they did this. But from the very beginning, that was never my intent. That was never what I was after. Polygamy outside of God's intent, homosexuality. Loved ones, it's outside of God's intent. There's been a lot of talk this week. I mean, the, the tragedy in Orlando is horrific. And, and shame on politicians for making it political. Shame on, on, on Christians for trying to over-spiritualize or saying that God is judging or condemning them. Can we just mourn? Can we be broken over the fact that nearly 50 people were slaughtered in cold blood? 50 people, I might add, that were created in the same image of God that you and I were created in. All right? Yes, yes. The scriptures are unmistakably clear.
clear that any homosexual act is outside of God's intent. But see, here's the crazy thing. So is pornography. So is adultery. So is fornication. So are all the other sexual sins that as a church, let's just be honest, we're much more casual with those things than we are with the homosexual thing. Let's be fair. Let's be equitable. Let's say sexual sin is sexual sin. Let's do it judiciously across the board. Let's be honest in our own lives about that. And understand what God's intent was in God's, and what God's intent was not. Now I'll tell you, I, I think we're, we're on the precipice of this thing just going way more sideways than it already is. We're, we're, we're just, we're like at the starting line. Um, in fact, here's just one example. There's a number, but this is probably the best example. I, any of you ever heard of a thruple? Anyone know what that is? Thruple? Heard that term? Okay, so a thruple is kind of a play on words between three and couple. And it's the, I mean, it's happening all over the world. Three people being married to each other. Now, this is just the front end of what's in front of us. And what God's intent was versus what will happen, this is just the beginning of that. Loved ones, with respect to your marriage, respect to other people's marriage, you be faithful to your spouse. You be faithful to your spouse in action, in thought, in word, in deed, in all things. Male and female. Notice then this thirdly. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Going to leave mom and dad. Now, leaving father and mother carries with it the, the, the clearest connotation. I would just suggest to you that you would, you would leave or abandon all other human relationships in the sense that they would begin to interfere with your marriage relationship. Here's, here's what leaving father and mother is. Bottom line, it's this. Your marriage relationship is the most important human relationship, period. Amen. Let me say that again in case, you didn't get, in case you didn't hear it. Your marriage relationship is the most important human relationship that you will ever have, period. Amen. The moment that you get married, mom and dad, take a back seat. Brother and sister, take a back seat. Um, friends, take a back seat. When you have kids, guess what? They also take a back seat. The far, the far back. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't even want to get in the car, right? Um, and yet how many of us, how many of us we don't leave mother and father? Or maybe that one's easy, but we don't leave brother or sister. We don't leave best friend. Or down the line, daughter or son become more important than husband or wife. Now, if you're married, you protect that relationship and you make it clear to everyone else around you. So my wife sitting right here, I'll just tell you right now, none of you will ever even come close to the significance of my relationship with her. And I tell my kids that all the time. I love you, but I love, I love your mom more. That, that relationship is more important than my relationship with you. Because I want them to understand that one day when they get married, to cut the cord, right? Hope they cut the cord before they get married. Um, but... Uh, I want them to understand that and I want them to love their wife or for Kara to love her husband in that same manner. It's the most important human relationship. Now on the other side of this, if you are a parent and your child is on the verge of getting married or just got married or you're a sibling or whatever, you have to back off. You gotta back off. In fact, let me put it this way to you. The point that someone gets married 
You take a step down in terms of prominence and significance that your voice and your relationship has in their life. And an attempt to hold that is an attempt to undermine God's intent in that relationship. So the next time you want to talk to your son or daughter or your brother or your sister or your friend about their marriage, just in the back of your mind going, do I really want to interfere with God's intent for this relationship? Or am I on the verge of undermining God's intent for this relationship? Leave father and mother the most important relationship. And then he comes to this, really the, the consummation both of what he is saying and literally the consummation of the relationship. He says, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus speaking of one flesh. Now one flesh carries with it, certainly there's a sexual connotation to it. But in our, um, ironically, we love sex, but we're so afraid to talk about it or we get weirded out by it. It's, we have this weird relationship in our society where we're all for it and we want to be liberated and free in our sex, but we can't talk candidly or honestly about it. Sex in its purest form is a physical representation of the fullness or the wholeness or the completeness of a marriage relationship that, that, that is, is one flesh. So yes, if you are married, have sex. Do that. That's a good thing. That's a good gift that God gave to you. Some of you are like, wow, my pastor just told me to go have sex with my spouse. This is awesome. I'm coming to church more often. Um, if you're not married, you don't have sex until you get married. You wait. Because you're outside of God's intent. But do not think that sex is the be-all, end-all in your relationship. Sex is simply the culmination of the spiritual, emotional, physical, uh, mental, all those other components in which you are one with that person. See, the one flesh thing, one of the things that I love about the one flesh is this idea where you literally have two different people and then they become one. It's almost like the two of them cease to exist in some respect and, and this new person exists. And so, so I've, I've, come to, I've kind of gone on this long journey um, where I really could have cared less about weddings to now I love weddings. I, probably having to officiate a number of them has been uh, instrumental in changing the tide in that. But one of my favorite parts of the ceremony is, is that moment when, when bride and, and you know, in, the, in ideal situations, dad come around the corner, right? Groom is here, and of course, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's going crazy, and everyone's like, oh, the bride looks amazing. And, and it's this great moment, but in my mind, I'm always thinking, it's the last time you're a separate entity. Because when you walk, you, you're going to walk down two very different people. Or, or you walk down two very different people. When you leave, you're one unique, different person. And it's such a beautiful picture of what God does in marriage. This one flesh concept. I would just encourage you, if you're married, that you would allow the one flesh concept to flourish in your marriage completely. That you would invest in all aspects of this mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, all of it. You invest in all of it. And if you're not married, or even if you're married, but in, in interacting with others, you push them towards that with their spouse. One flesh. Two other things quickly that Jesus says here. Uh, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, 
Uh, really what he's telling us here that this one flesh union, is, it's a divine act. Only God can do this. And then uh, let not man separate. This is really probably the only thing that Jesus really speaks to with respect to divorce. And he's saying don't attempt to break apart what God joins together. And then Mark, I'm sure there was more, maybe not, maybe that was the end of that conversation, but I'm guessing there was a whole lot more of what went on behind closed doors in that home. And Mark gives us very little of it. And in verses 1 through 9 are shocking or hard to handle. Verse 10 through 12 are out of the ballpark in terms of shock factor. Because all Jesus says is this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Did you catch that? You're divorced, go marry someone else. You are actually committing adultery against your first wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Same for her. What's Mark saying? See, I think Mark's intent in verses 10 through 12 is not to give us this exhaustive sense of where remarriage is or is not acceptable. In fact, I don't even think that's his intent. I think he simply uses remarriage to drive us home to the point of, of how serious marriage is and how serious divorce is. I don't think his intent is even dealing with remarriage. He's speaking to the primary sense of marriage uh, initially with respect to this and the implications of divorce and, and what comes beyond that. And so it's imperative, it's imperative for us that we would see these things rightly. So let me do this with the rest of our time. Here's what I want to do. I, I want to take this text and I want to speak to um, various places that each of you may find yourself. And just let what we've seen in these first 12 verses speak into uh, the reality of what I think God wants us to hear this morning. So here we go, final point. How should we understand and live within this? Let me start with those of you who are not married first. And when, when I'm saying not married, because next we're going to talk about people who are considering marriage, I'm talking about you don't ever see yourself being married. Uh, either because you really believe God has given you the gift of celibacy or, or you're for that, or at least you find yourself in a season where you see that to be the case. Uh, maybe you're a widow or a widower and you're at a point in your life where you're like, you know what, I just don't ever see myself being married again. For those of you who would find yourself in that place, uh, my exhortation to you would be to elevate and to lift high uh, each of your friends' and family members' marriages that you would push them towards that, that you would elevate that, that you would encourage that, that you would not be in competition with them, but in affirming and side-by-side side with them in that. That you would hold high the reality of marriage. Now, for some of you, that might be hard. Because in some respects, it feels like I'm, I'm going to take a backseat to my brother or my sister or to my best friend. or well, That's kind of the point of marriage. And so you elevate that and you lift it high. Second of all, for those of you who are considering marriage, and it may be in the immediate future, it may be 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, this would apply to all of you. If you're considering marriage, first of all, this. Would you please understand the gravity and the importance of this decision? In fact, I would say to you, that there is only one decision that you will make in all of life that is more, to, more important than the, than the decision of marriage, and that is the decision to follow Jesus. 
Once you have settled that decision, then the second most important decision that you will make in your life is with respect to marriage. It is a weighty, heavy, um, uh, momentous uh, decision. Do not treat it casually. Do not treat it apathetically. Do not treat it nonchalantly. Sometimes I'm so grieved at the casual nature with which people will enter divorce or intermarriage, which is probably why we so casually will also enter divorce at times. Further, if you are considering marriage, can I, can I just plead with you to not get sucked into the societal pressure around that? Don't, don't do it prematurely because um, well, we've we, we got to have a ceremony or I really want to do this or mom's pressing me and mom, please don't push your children into something that is a bad decision. I've watched people, this is one of the most heartbreaking things to see, is to watch people who legitimately question whether or not they should get married and they'll say something like, the invitations are out. The plane tickets have been purchased. All this stuff's been paid for. Hopefully it'll work out. I'm like, man, can I just tell you that it is way easier to leave five minutes before the ceremony than it is five minutes after? I promise you. It might not feel like it, but it is. And not only is it easier before, biblically, you're in a radically different place afterwards. You just are. And that freedom that you have before the service, you don't have afterwards. So if you are considering marriage, get good premarital counseling. Get good premarital counseling. Seek input from people you love. And, and don't, do, don't do this, well, I'm saying I want your input, but what I really want is your approval. And if you don't give me your approval, I'm going to ignore you. Don't do that garbage. Go to people and listen to them. Hear what they're saying. On the other side, if someone seeks your input, give them honest input. Don't say, uh, in my mind, I'm going, that's uh, probably not. Yeah, I think you guys will be great. Lies. Don't lie about this. Be honest. Sometimes moms and dads are the most guilty when it comes to this. Well, I just don't feel like I can tell my son or daughter. You can't tell them it's, it's not a good idea. You can't ask them some hard questions. What's going to happen six months from now when things are way worse? And here's the other problem. You've already trashed your integrity. So why would they listen to you? Well, you know, before you got married, I didn't think it was a good idea. Why didn't you say something then? Why would I believe you now? Be honest. Be honest. This is the bi biggest decision outside of following Jesus, the biggest decision of our life. Let's take it seriously. If you're married, <laughs> this one's kind of easy. If you're married, you read verse 6 and 9 and you do it. I mean, I'll, I'll say a few other things, but, but really, that's it. You commit first and foremost to your spouse. You love your husband and your wife more than you love anyone not named Jesus. You commit yourself to that relationship. You, you put a wall around anything that would attempt to undermine that. You create boundaries and barriers that would protect that and elevate that. You love your wife. You love your husband. You treat them. Let me just say this. With the same grace, mercy, um, 
kindness, forbearance, patience, and gentleness that Jesus shows you and I, you extend that to your spouse. That's what you do when you're married. You do it every day. You ask for forgiveness when you fail, which will be often. You extend forgiveness when you're failed, which will also be often. And you love each other to the best of your ability in the same way that Jesus has loved you. All right, how about this one? This one's a little bit harder. If you're considering divorce. See, I'm not so naive as to think that in a room like this, there aren't people who are legitimately struggling through this issue. I want out. I want to be done. I can't do it anymore. A few things I would say to you with respect to the text and what God commands us. First of all, this passage, like all the other passages in the scripture, none of them are written to address grounds for divorce. Not any passage in the scripture is the author's intent or Jesus' intent. Here's where it's okay. So if your approach to considering divorce is, how can I get away with this and be okay? You're already outside the bounds of what scripture is calling you to. Okay? Now there are exemptions in the scripture. God in his forbearance and his kindness towards us gives us exemptions. Uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 19 talks about adultery being an exception for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the desertion of an unbelieving spouse being an exemption for divorce. And so uh, it's hard to argue that there's never a divorce that's not permissible. But none of the passages in the scripture set out saying, here's where you want to start. Because while they're there, it doesn't mandate that I have to get divorced if this has happened. Okay? None of the passages are written to address grounds for divorce. Let's start with that. Second of all, divorce is always tragic. Always. Don't try to tell me that it's, di it's not different. It's tragic, there's fallout, there's hurt, there's pain. You will never be able to, to undo that because we'll never be able to undo what God's intent for marriage was. Sometimes I hear couples, if I could just be done with my wife, if I could just be done with my wife, if I could just get out of this, things would be so much better. The grass is yellow and, and brown and spotty on the other side of the fence too. And there's grubs over there. Um, and the soil's hard there too. It's not greener. It's just a different kind of hard. I mean, maybe, maybe someone's out there who would say, everything about my divorce was wonderful and God was honored in it and I loved it. I'll just tell you, I've never seen that and I've never met that person. It's always tragic. Thirdly, um, this is my pastoral plea if you find yourself in this situation that prior to proceeding, I would implore you to get counseling. I would implore you as your pastor, please go get counseling. From an objective party, I might add. Okay, your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your best friend probably isn't going to be objective when you're spilling your side of the story to them. Go find someone who can be uh, unbiased. Go find someone who can speak truth into your life. Come to one of the pastors. Come to one of the elders. Come to one of the elders' wives. In fact, elders and pastors and wives, would you guys stand up real quick? Just in case you're wondering who I'm talking about when I'm saying this. These are some of the people I'm talking about. 
These are our elders, um, Pastor Randy and Chloe. Um, Pastor Ryan is next door. Obviously, Pastor Stefan is in California right now. If you're in this place, if you're wondering about these things, grab one of these people and say, can I talk to you? Maybe you just stick a note in, in their hand with your name and a phone number. They'll know what to do with that. But I would implore you, do not go get divorced without letting godly men and women speak into your life and into your situation. Please, 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 please don't do that. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. Fourthly, if you're considering divorce, I feel like I have to tell you this just to be fair, that Jesus knows what it is to have a terrible spouse. He does. I mean, it's a little bit funny, but it's honestly tragic. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, and I don't necessarily know what goes on behind closed doors, and I've heard horror stories, no one is a worse spouse than the church has been to Jesus. No one's worse. And Jesus has been unflinching in his faithfulness. That should be a challenge to us. And it should also bring great comfort to us. And then the million dollar question. What do you do with abuse? What do you do with abuse? Let me, let me actually read first. I've got a lot I want to say on this, but I, I will be limited, I promise. Let me first read. This is out of commentary series, the exegetical commentary on the New Testament by a guy named Mark Strauss. I love this commentary series. I would highly recommend it. If you ever want a commentary, this is awesome. Um, Strauss addresses that very issue. I loved what he said, so I want to read this and then just maybe add a few things to it. He says, what if the question of physical abuse had arisen in another of Paul's letters? Would he have allowed, would he have allowed separation or divorce? We cannot say for sure, but I suspect he would. A husband who is physically abusing his wife is clearly violating the command to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, loved ones, don't, don't think that it's a one-way street. It goes both ways. Unfortunately, we simply don't know how Paul would respond in such a case, whether by allowing for separation or divorce, calling for strong church intervention, or in some other way. All this to say that church leaders must take care before establishing absolute rules concerning divorce and remarriage, since each situation is unique and the Bible does not deal comprehensively with this topic, hence why I just had uh, pastors and elders and their wives stand up. Church leaders need to affirm strongly the true significance of marriage, the tragedy of divorce, and the redemptive power of the gospel. Divorces or um, abuse is one of those things that's so hard because it's not explicitly stated in here. And yet it cuts against every one of our sensibilities. So let me just say a few things about um, abuse. First of all, let me speak to those of you who, if you are in an abusive relationship, the scriptures do not they do not, they do not, they do not mandate that you just take it. If you've been given counsel like that, it was not biblical counsel. Do you understand me? It's not biblical. That, that's a heinous violation of the covenant of marriage. If you are in an abusive situation, I would beg of you today, stand up 
not physically, maybe you need to physically stand up right now, but that you would stand up and that you would say, I'm done. I will not tolerate this anymore. Easy to say will be the hardest thing you will ever have to do. If you're in an abusive relationship, send me a note, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the pastors, talk to one of their wives, reach out. It will be the hardest thing you will ever have to do in your life. I am begging you, begging you, begging you, please do it because you cannot begin to address that situation until it is made known. Now on the other side of that, if you're abusive, it's time to, it's time to be done. It's time to be exposed. It's time to be held accountable. If when I started talking about being abused, if you reached over and you grabbed your husband or your wife's leg and you uh, grabbed it tightly, you put your arm on uh, her hand on her arm, or something, you know what I'm talking about. Because you know you're on the verge of being exposed. You need to be exposed. It's God's mercy and kindness that will expose you. Because you are so heinously violating what God's intent for marriage was and it is time for you to be done. If you're being abused, please step forward. If you are abusive, would you please step forward as well and say, I need help. I need um, someone to walk with me. I need to be held accountable. And do not, do not, do not go, I'll fix this on my own. Because you won't. Because you would have. And further, because you can't. Hence the need for Jesus and the gospel. This is such, this is such a, I'm so worked up right now, I can't even think. Um, this is such a horrible thing. And we are naive if we think that that's something that just happens out there. Please, please, please. If you are considering divorce because of abuse, get help, let's get safe, and then let's start dealing with the issues. Am I clear on that? Okay. Final thing. I just want to sit down, but we got to talk about this last one. Final thing. If you've been divorced, if you've been divorced, first of all, let me say this. There's no such thing as a sin-free divorce. And so if you've been divorced, you got to own the fact that you had, that you're complicit at some level in that. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that each party has equal culpability in divorce. Sometimes it's pretty equal. Sometimes it's pretty one-sided. But we both participate in that. Every divorce is a result of human sinfulness. And so I have two things that I would say to you if you've been divorced. First of all, if you have been divorced and you have not repented of the sin of divorce, that is where you need to start. You need to go to God. You need to seek forgiveness in that and say, God, I was wrong for this. Forgive me. Then secondly, if you have been divorced and you have repented before God and sought his forgiveness, then you thank him for the immeasurable goodness and grace and kindness that is found in his presence. You thank God that there is no sin that is outside of his purview. You thank God that he rescues and redeems everything because there's nothing, nothing, nothing 
that God looks at and goes, you know, I can't cover that. Your divorce is no different. Some of you too casual. Some of you too harsh or judgmental on yourself. We need to repent of the sin of divorce and then we live in the immeasurable grace of God's goodness and his forgiveness that he extends to us. And we live in it fully, we live in it completely, we live in it comprehensively. Mark 10, 1 through 12. When we look at this, can I just encourage all of us here this morning to pursue biblical marriage? That the, the heart of this text and the heart of Jesus would be our heart that as we consider our failures in marriage, that we would run to the cross and seek Jesus' forgiveness and let that be uh, so full and freeing in us as, as, we, um, as Jesus addresses our shortcomings, that we would seek his forgiveness. And as we consider our spouse's shortcomings, that we would extend the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has extended to us. Let me pray.